Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. How's it going, Zofia? Yeah, going great. Really happy to be on again. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Um, we uh, are going to talk a little bit about your trip to Copenhagen today. Um, you were at the Global Fashion Summit a couple of weeks ago, and we'll hear about some of what you witnessed there. And then we're also going to talk about uh, the watch brand Omega raising their prices and what that means for the whole Swatch group. And then finally, we're going to talk about a really cool thing that the that Japan Airlines is doing around rental fashion and travel, which I think is a very fun idea. Um, but let's start with Copenhagen. I, I Like I just said before we started recording this, Zofia, I don't really have a lot of notes for this. You were the one there. Um, what, was, what was Copenhagen like? What was the Global Fashion Summit like? What did you see? Uh, anything exciting, interesting, cool people? Yeah, of course. So just as a quick refresher, um, Copenhagen's Global Fashion Summit happened on the 27th and 28th of June. Um, and it's probably the biggest fashion sustainability event in the world. And I think it's biannual now. Last last time, I think they had one in Singapore. And I believe that they're bringing one to Boston later this year. So there'll be one in the States. Um, and yeah, I was there, luckily, um, seeing everything and all of the different exhibitions and panels. Um, the basically changed a venue um, from what it was last year. So they moved it to a different concert hall. And there was all these stages um, for different parts. So whether that's innovation, the main stage where you had all of the biggest speakers um, like LVMH's Louis Arnaud. And I think that one of the best things, obviously, for me was that I got to moderate one of the sessions, um, which was very exciting talking about blockchain. Um, and how it was being used in the cotton supply chain. Um, so in terms of kind of the things that were happening there, it's basically just a load of speakers and people coming in. Most of the times there isn't a huge amount of controversy, but you know, last year there was a Sheehan involvement with the Ore Foundation. Um, and this year, I believe that the Ore Foundation came back um, to show how much of the clothes that was coming through to Ghana um, and its famous Cantamato market um, was just being overrun by clothes from Western brands. I think they brought bags onto the stage and kind of showed it up. Um, and then, you know, with Arnaud, one of the interesting things that he said on stage, he was on stage to talk about luxuries, kind of impact with sustainability. Um, and he was on stage with Louis um designer, Jonathan Anderson, he said that luxury products are sustainable by nature. That's what makes them so special. And I think a lot of people at the conference took a big issue with that because obviously when you're talking about those swathes of production, <laughs> it's not necessarily something that might be inherently sustainable. And this was coming off the back of um, the very kind of over-entertainment-focused show that um, Louis Vuitton did in Paris you know, they'd shut off like bridges and it was a very big spectacle event. Um, definitely not sustainable in my opinion. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of people think about that just because something is in that luxury category um, doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. You know, people have the same issues when it comes to where the materials are coming from. Um, most of the times in terms of supply chain, it is significantly better than the mass market. Um, but there are still certain issues that need to be addressed, you know, around biodiversity, um, around, you know, overproduction, like those issues 
just happen in, in every sector of fashion. And then I think, you know, the other thing um, that was really kind of interesting in, in terms of the, um, the Copenhagen's Global Fashion Summit was just how much of an importance there was being put on data and regulation. Uh, I don't know, Danny, like I, I'm sure that you've done a lot of pieces, same as me, around, you know, how um, fashion is being regulated and it's kind of coming, um, you know, at a really big time. There's some new um, regulation that is coming out of the EU um, around kind of waste disposal and supply chain responsibility. Um, so I think it's just something that, you know, a lot of brands are talking about right now. And data collection is kind of one of the most important parts of that, um, because brands need to know what they're doing wrong and where they're doing wrong before they can address it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I want to talk about the regulation um, element of it. But real quick on that, that idea that luxury products are inherently more sustainable or, or whatever. I, I'm with you in not really buying that. I mean, I, you could point to the many species of animal that like went nearly extinct or fully extinct because people wanted to wear them, you know, like ostrich leather and, you know, all these like endangered species being used uh, for luxury products definitely, I think, is a point against that. But also like there are luxury brands that do a huge amount of volume of sales. Uh, I, I think what Arno is getting at there is that because it's more limited or whatever, it's more expensive, that less of it is made. Um, that's not always true. I mean, like Rolex makes a lot of watches. Uh, they probably don't make quite as many as, you know, Swatch or something, but they, or, or Casio, but they do. They make, they still do a big, you know, a lot of volume. So I don't think that really holds up either. And then uh, on top of that, it's kind of like any brand, no matter the size, is perfectly capable of like dumping their, you know, waste into the rivers or whatever. It's, uh, I, so I don't, I'm, I'm with you and the others that, that I don't think that totally holds up. Um, and I also feel like that's a little bit of a, a deflection of, you know, well, we don't have to do much else because we're just inherently sustainable. Anyway, that's my take on that subject. But um, yeah, just to be fair... Like um, in terms of the the rest of this discussion, like you was talking about, you know, collective action among luxury players that should be something that they're doing. He did say something that you know we shouldn't be put in the same category as fast fashion brands, but again, it was just that. Um, yeah, I guess it's that smugness. You know, there's so many. Um, I guess, pieces that have come out in recent years around brands destroying their own goods because they're one thinking that it's going to lose value if they, you know, don't resell it. So there's, you know, burning of bags from Burberry um, or, you know, other brands who have just gone to completely just rip their stuff um, instead of selling it um, because they're worried that it will lower the overall value if they resell it anywhere else. Um, so yeah, I think it's there's there's some issues there that, that definitely yeah. need to be addressed. <laughs> and Burberry's burning bags is a great bit of alliteration right there. Um, also the uh, so onto the regulation topic though. So that was um, what uh, Jill and I talked about on this podcast the the week of the fashion summit was the uh, the idea coming out of the summit that fashion is underregulated, which I think I agree with. That some brands might um, you know think that that's not the case, but I think it's true that the fashion industry definitely needs some more tighter regulations. I think you wrote in your story out of the summit that there's a lot of talk or agreement that we should regulate more, but not a ton of agreement on what or how. Um, what, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, 
what were some of the conversations you were hearing about what brands not not just should do, but what should we make them do, basically? Yeah, of course. I mean, the the biggest issue around, um, I guess, the regulation, most of it at the moment is coming out of the EU, um, is that it is essentially a little bit of a long-term plan. It was something that was, you know, initially proposed a couple of years ago around, um, I guess, product um, transparency and traceability. So things like digital product passports, um, you know, supply chain um Ownership, so brands, for example, would have to be responsible for things further down into their supply chain. Um, all of that was some very kind of interesting and good moves. And I think there was some greenwashing legislation that was actually put into effect um, a couple of months ago. But it's it's still very much a conversation about will it go through? Um, will everyone kind of support it? And the EU is also having an election this year, which means that some of these things might be moved or reprioritized. There's also a little bit of confusion because some regulations are actually contradicting others. I talked to um, Nikolai from um, Ghani, who's like a very big sustainability-focused brand um, coming out of Copenhagen. And at the moment, they said they're monitoring 40 different legislations, um, with 16 of them being as something that directly impacts their business. But they did say that it was very confusing and that some things contradicted each other. So there needs to be more clarification on what is actually applicable to brands and also making sure that all of those spaces are covered so nothing ends up contradicting each other. Jill and I were recently talking about the company Bolt Threads, that's material science, and they had that mushroom leather that they said they they couldn't get the funding for and they're not going to make it anymore. Um, taking into account your, your experience at Copenhagen, but also other reporting and stuff you've done, are, are you getting the sense that some sustainability stuff might suffer from people not wanting to invest in it uh, in the near future, given that, you know, budgets are tightening and people are, you know, pulling back on some experimental stuff they might have been doing before. Um, any sense of that from Copenhagen or from your reporting? Um, I'm not sure if anyone's kind of really pulling back. It is definitely a tougher time when it comes to raising money overall. And, you know, there are some um, priorities being made to things in the tech space, um, like AI. Um, I think that's one of the things that the Bolt Threads executive said was a reason, which I'm not too sure it was. I think that there is other issues there around cost um, of the material implementation that halted it from getting to the point of commercialization. I think I wrote about that in an article this week. But essentially, I do think that, you know, investment in sustainability is going to get costlier further down the line. I think that executives understand that it's not something that necessarily they're able to put off any longer, especially because the legislation is coming. So even though they might think that, you know, it's maybe a higher cost right now, it is something that I think they're going to still continue investing into. It just might not be the experimental stuff that isn't ready to scale right now. Like they are looking at things which are, you know, commercial ready right now. So things like, you know, renew cell, um, recycling or reusing polyester, something that actually has um, very real time applications is definitely more important. Yeah, got it. OK, cool. Well, thank you for that uh, report back from Copenhagen. It's very cool that we have someone who's close enough to to go over and check it out. When it comes to Boston, I will try to be there. 
Um, let's move on though and talk about Omega. I know it's pronounced Omega technically, but whatever. I'm going to say Omega. <laughs> um, that's uh, so Omega is uh, the luxury watch brand that's owned by Swatch. Um, they announced this week that they are raising their prices again. I think only a couple percentage points, but it's the second time they've raised their prices this year. And um, it's the interesting thing to me was I saw a lot of analysis from uh, investors and from Wall Street analysts who viewed this not as a uh, a movement, a move coming from a position of strength, but rather a move coming from a position of weakness. Um, Omega is uh, a huge first swatch group. Um, I think it makes up 60% of their sales. And then they have a bunch of smaller brands like Tizot and Lanjine. And uh, a lot of those other brands are not doing so well. They saw a sharp, the whole group as a whole, saw a sharp decline in sales in China um, at the end of last year. And uh, a lot of, I think, analysts are viewing the Omega price point going up as kind of a, a li reeking a little bit of desperation. Um, this one brand is, you know, doing super well from them and the rest are struggling. So, like, let's try and squeeze a couple more percentage points of profit out of that one brand, um, which I think, you know, a lot of luxury brands have raised prices, like, with no issue all the time. Um, but I do think there is, you know, a limit. You can't there, there's, there is a ceiling uh, for any brand, no matter what it is. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on brands in general, kind of like pushing price points up, trying to capture that highly affluent consumer, um, and maybe some of the risks there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very strange one for me because it does feel like you know you're in a bit of an unstable position if you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. Um, and I think that with um, with Omega, it's just something that they're not really, I, I guess it doesn't seem like a very long-term plan to put the prices up immediately after, you know, all of the forecasts saying that luxury consumers, the ones who are buying now, like they've still got potential with their other brands, um, whether that's Swatch or Tissot. Um, and I think potentially putting more of their investment into that might, you know, equal more stable and kind of long-term portfolio um, rather than something that may lose value because of this, you know, in increased kind of price hike. I don't know if um, if it's kind of typical for watch brands to put their prices up so kind of drastically. I know that, you know, in terms of fashion, um, kind of Chanel's price raises are, are pretty much standard by now. Um, it's not something that kind of comes as, as a surprise necessarily, even if those prices are, you know, I would say exorbitant. But in terms of Omega, if it is something that's quite sudden, um, that really wasn't expected before, there's probably going to be a bigger push towards, you know, resale pieces. Are those going to go up as well? Um, like with the watch market, I feel like that is a much bigger factor than it is with um, most kind of other fashion um, categories. So I'm wondering how that will also affect their bottom line, whether that is something that they're taking into account, um, because people will just tend to, you know, buy things which are older in that case, um, rather than buying the new ones if the prices are raised so ridiculously. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're totally right. I, I was also looking at some other um I was looking for some other portfolio companies that are kind of in a similar situation. And there's a, I think there's a good amount where they've got multiple brands, but one is clearly by and large the the standout. Um, Capri Holdings, for example, which owns Jimmy Choo, Versace, and Michael Kors. I was looking up the sales and it's like last quarter, Jimmy Choo did, 
I have it written down. 150 million in revenue. Versace did like 270 million in revenue. And then uh, Michael Kors was like almost a billion. So it's just several orders of magnitude larger than the others. Um, And I think there is a, you know, you might want to lean on that overperforming brand, especially in an environment like this where it's kind of precarious for everyone. But you end up putting a lot of pressure on that brand too. Uh, My my thinking would be then if you had like a Balenciaga situation, for example, where a brand suddenly has like some controversy so insane that it instantly impacts that brand and it's the one brand that you've put all of your, you know, like you said, all of your eggs into that one basket, that seems uh, a little bit risky to me, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think it's the same, like, I guess like in most portfolio kind of companies whether that's you know something like tapestry um or you know as you said with capri holdings i think there are brands that you know maybe perform a lot better but i do think it's about keeping that stability within the portfolio like you can't just again you can't put all of your eggs in one basket because if it does um you know end up plummeting for whatever reason like with the balenciaga thing um it can end up taking a big a big hit and you know at that point sales might be considered um or else the value will be so low that it would take a long time to build that back up i think it's a very kind of delicate game the slow and steady approach i think would have would have won this one out yeah definitely um, cool. Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, this was suggested by you, actually, Sophia, and I thought it was such a fun idea. I hadn't even heard about this. Um, but this week, Japan Airlines is starting a 13-month experiment uh, where passengers can rent clothes ahead of time on, on before a trip to Japan. And you pay not even that much. I think the lowest was like 35 U- US dollars, a uh, couple thousand yen. And uh, when you get to your hotel, there is a wardrobe waiting for you for the extent of your stay. And then when you're done, you just leave it and they pick it up. It's kind of uh, combining rental with travel. Um, The idea was to support sustainable tourism, um, the airline said, which is, you know, it it reduces the weight that uh, of the plane because people are not packing as much, um, and that uses less gas because that's a lighter load. Uh, it encourages the reuse of clothes because all the clothes I think are sourced there's their excess stock from retailers or secondhand um, that they've acquired. the The airline is uh, Japan Airlines is working with a company called Sumitomo Corporation, I think, which is one of those like giant Japanese companies that makes like a hundred different types of product and just have like hands and everything like Yamaha or something like that. Um, but I thought it was really cool. I mean, there is a little bit of precedent in this. I was looking back a couple of years ago, Rent the Runway had similarly worked with a couple different hotels where you'd rent your stuff ahead of time and then it, they would be waiting for you in the hotel. It'd be in your closet already. And then you just left it there when you're done. I'm kind of surprised though that there's not more crossover between rental and travel or even rental and, you know, an event space or something or, you know, bridal or something. I feel like there is a lot of places where I could see the value of having clothes just waiting for you there. Um, feels like a good opportunity for a rental company to get in on that. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on that, Sophia? Yeah, I, I actually reached out to Sumitomo just because I was really interested in the topic um, and personally had been <laughs> traveling to Japan with a very big suitcase. Um, I think typically, you know, when you're looking at those extended trips, whether that's, you know, I guess for me, it would be either 
US or Japan, um, it's something where you end up packing for three weeks and it's just a huge amount of clothing, which you probably don't need. And you also want, you know, souvenirs. So the, the less kind of <laughs> clothes you have in your suitcase, the better. But in terms of the kind of rental model, I think it's a really interesting um, partnership. And I'm hoping that this kind of experiment will showcase that, you know, in terms of rental, there are clear kind of market opportunities for places where, you know, I guess traveling with a lot of clothes just doesn't make sense. Um, and actually, I was talking to I believe it was Aditi Maya, um, who's this sustainability influencer um, in Copenhagen. She told me how she um, works with By Rotation, I believe, um, who have just kind of launched on the US market and they're a rental um, and resale company. And they basically give her clothes in certain areas where she's traveling to I think it's it could be something that works you know across the consumer model it may just be an extra service that people have to pay for um but you know especially for events like rental makes so much sense um I think it's something that I did last year for the global fashion awards um I think it's something that just keeps on coming up um, as an interesting proposition. It's just maybe working out those logistics of, you know, one, how do you make sure those costs are low? Two, that you're not kind of spending, um, I guess, more carbon emissions by making those things travel. Um, and if there is a little bit more of an opportunity with global companies who, you know, might have more outposts in different areas and would be able to service that locally without things having to kind of move around. Because most of the time you have to also, you know, get these things dry cleaned. Um, there's just additional transport costs that people have to take into account. But yeah, it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. Um, and I think with Japan, it just works well. I don't know anyone who's gone there with anything less than a really, really big suitcase. Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of us in the US or Europe, it's pretty much as far as you can go. Uh, so it's a really, it's a long trip for most people in this, in our kind of region. Um, and also I think there's an opportunity for travel related stuff across fashion, not just rental, purely because people are traveling more now than they were a couple of years ago. I think the Rent the Runway hotel partnership, as far as I know, I think they're not doing it anymore. Um, I can I can confirm with them though. But uh and I think it's probably because for several years people were not traveling that much. So but now that mm. that's back, I feel like there's a big um, you know, a big opportunity for all sorts of travel related stuff for fashion. So yeah, I just thought this was a very fun idea of like just the airline doing it and you know, making it part of your travel itinerary. Um, very cool idea. And I'm always interested in talking rental stuff. Um any other thoughts you have, Zofia, on this or other stuff before we sign off? No, I think it's just a very kind of big time sustainability-wise. You know, you've got these rental ideas coming to very kind of commercial opportunities. Um, you've got regulation. It just feels like that's that's the kind of hot topic right now, maybe apart from Barbie and Threads. Barbie, Threads, and the future <laughs> of the planet, the three... The three most important things on our mind right now. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Zofia, thank you so much for joining. Um, for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Wednesday we do cool interviews with industry insiders. And every Friday we do weekend review episodes just like this one. So until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.